welcome to The Straw Hat with Rabbi David Wolkenfeld and Rabbinate Goldie Guy. We are the official podcast of Anshe Shalom B'nai Israel Congregation, an Orthodox synagogue in the Lakeview neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. So as many of you know, the shul received a package in the mail two weeks ago, and I've been talking about it almost nonstop uh, since then. So, But maybe some of you haven't heard about it, and I just wanted to take this opportunity to share a little bit more about this uh, this package. I've learned a little bit more um, since the package arrived, and uh, so there's like a little bit more to say. We received a, a gift from St. Basil's um, Orthodox Greek Orthodox Church uh, on South Ashland Avenue, which is a church that since 1927 has been housed in a building that was built as Anshe Shalom Synagogue. Uh, it was one of the earlier um, iterations of our shul. A beautiful, beautiful um, neoclassical revival something something building. Uh, gorgeous, gorgeous building. I dare to say a lot grander looking than our current uh, shul's building. Uh, and, and we left that shul in 1927. They moved in. They've been there ever since. And um, a few years ago, there was a fire, and they had to do extensive renovations to the building, and part of what they did was replace the pews, and when they replaced the pews, they removed the silver um, nameplates from the back of the seats that had been you know, endowed by members uh, who, I guess, sat and davened in those seats. I think this is actually from the balcony. I think this was the Ezra Nashim. I think these were the nameplates of women who purchased those seats, endowed those seats, and for them to, not really endowed, right, because I think they sat in the seats with their own names on them. That was how they... Um, that's how synagogue seating worked back then. Uh, you, you didn't um, buy membership you uh, or, or pay for membership. You, you bought a seat, and, and that was the place where you sat. And I think the pricing was like based on how desirable the various seats were, and, and your name was on the seat where you yourself sat. So I think these are actually the names of, of women. We just have um, initial, first initials and last names, but I think they were from the balcony seating, where, which was an Ezra Nashim in that, in that shul. Uh, so they sent us that. So after I, got, I don't know, I guess they were sitting in a box or something. I don't know for a couple of years, and they sent it to us. And I, I, I um, shared on in the Torah before um, this past Friday or Shabbat that I just found it just like a wonderful, inspiring, like touch tone from like our ancestors, or you know, like not my little ancestors, the ancestors of our, our shul, the grand, the parents of the grandparents of, of uh, the Chicago Jewish community who dived in there and sat there and paid for those seats, and also just a wonderful, like, inspiring connection to this other religious community here in Chicago, people of goodwill who live lives centered around prayer. They come every week to this building that was built by our community that housed our shul, uh, and we have this connection to them now, and I, I hope we have a chance to uh, continue that connection. I wrote a letter back to them, which I mailed off uh, a few days ago, in which I said maybe we could do some sort of, like, mutual, like, Zoom tour of our uh, congregations and, uh, like, learn to know about each other because I think the fact that they are praying in a building that used to be our shul is, like, a real tie. And, and they're not the only ones. After um, after we left Ashland, the shul moved to the west side, um, I think, to, like, Polk and Independence, and there's a church that moved in to that building. I think that was even grander and larger, Anshay Shalom, uh, than the one on South Ashland. So um, I, I think that, that that's also a congregation there that I think is like waiting for us to reach out to them and learn more about them. What are their, what are their lives like? What, what is their community like? What's their religious devotion like? Because uh, I think the bond that we have, this shared building, I think is really special. It's really cool. It's a really cool story in general. And I love the connection between religious communities. It's so interesting that we actually, you know, shared spiritual homes, you know, that, uh, right, those walls hold prayers that from our forebears, right? So that's, 
kind of kind of awesome. It, it is it is really kind of awesome. It's it's a neat it's a neat connection. Like of all the um, like of all the congregations and the religious diversity in the city and the millions of people who live there. Like here's this group of people who go every day to pray and a building that was ours. I think that's I think that's I, know, I think that's kind of cool. It's a cool connection. I hope we'll be able to like establish some sort of connection with the congregation, you know, whatever we're able to do during COVID times. And after COVID times, maybe we can, you know, do more. And uh, with this congregation in South Ashland and also with the congregation and, and the West side where our shul also was once, uh, was once housed. I, I also, somebody else also reached out to me uh, suggesting that for purposes of Jewish genealogy, there are ways we can uh, upload the information just to say the name and to say the name of the congregation to say that, um, you know, it was endowed prior to 1927 when we left the building. Uh, just that information in a digitized form uh, is, can be of great use to people doing genealogy. And then, like, so that's, like, one step that we might take on. Or maybe if someone, a listener wants to volunteer to serve history in that way, that, that seems like a valuable service we could provide. And then another related task would be to digitize information in all of our memorial plaques in our current building uh, and, and make that available online as well because people doing genealogy, searching back their, about their family history, uh, this is like a huge like repository of information about you know people who lived and died and where they lived, et cetera, and to make that information available more broadly I think is, uh, like a, is a service to the broader community. Like There are websites that collect this information for researchers. Um, and uh, so that's also something I don't know. I guess if you're a vol- if you have some time to volunteer and you're in history and this is something that speaks to you, um, I-, I think we might put you to work. Do either you know starting with these uh, plates from uh, the South Ashland Ashish Shalom and then eventually maybe digitizing the information, some of the information that we have. Uh, actually, I think a lot of the information already is digitized. Our yard site plaques. Mm. I think we, we I think most of it is digitized already. But um, if we can upload it to this website to make it available for genealogists, I think that uh, would be a service as well. Yeah, very cool. A, a related issue, you know, there's there's renewed interest in the cemetery in Oakwoods, which is half owned by our shul and which we've uh, struggled to um, pay for its upkeep in in recent years. No, no one's been buried there in a very, very long time. And there are not more than one or two current dues-paying members of our shul have ancestors buried there. So it's hard to justify a major allocation of money for its upkeep. But we do... We have spent tens of thousands of dollars in the last uh, decade or so on upkeep of the cemetery um, and down in south of Hyde Park. And uh, every so often, passersby come across this not, you know, like somewhat decrepit looking piece of Jewish cemetery and, and get alarmed. Uh, the truth is the part that's owned by our shul is in much better condition than the other half of that cemetery. And uh, it is maintained, but it, it's not, um, you know, it, it could always be maintained better. And, and there is a value of like, it's a tremendous, tremendous historical like information is contained in those tombstones, and you know, there might be some way to collect that information and digitize it and make it available for people doing genealogy. I, I have this like, I don't know, idea I've toyed with that maybe that information we could like you know find out the descendants of people buried there, um, and maybe you know they'd be interested in paying for you know more, um, I don't know, like a higher level of upkeep of the cemetery. But you know that's mm. uh, you know otherwise it's our responsibility. Yeah, this is an open call to all the amateur genealogists and historians out there yes yeah uh, and it's not yeah because it's my, my strange entrepreneurial spirit of linking history and you know kind of fundraising for the show we can f- find the descendants <laughs> of past members and try to get them to join that's uh oh, you know another way to help uh, help with show finances um because we no longer sell seats right everyone gets the same seat okay you get the same rights to the same seat <laughs> if you're a member okay we don't sell seats anymore membership was 
it's a more democratic, you know, basis for sustaining shuls. Uh, it's, I think, you know, it's somewhat disfavored now. I think there's a number of congregations that have moved away from a um, membership model and they're sort of only voluntary dues. I, I think um, certainly speak has, which has advantages, that new model, but the basic mid 20th century membership model does also have advantages like a kind of democratic ethos of, you know, everyone has equal rights to the same seats. So. Yeah, and it's, a, it's just a beautiful way to connect to the past, to connect to tradition. I know that uh, my, my family, I think uh, there are some uh, amateur genealogists among them have been sending out, you know, pictures or, you know, pictures of old buildings where my family used to own a business or where they used to work. You know, it's very, it's, uh, very sentimental and it, and, it kind of, and it connects you to the past in a way that's really meaningful. Um, what, what business was your family in? Um, so my dad's father um, was a pharmacist. Uh, in Brooklyn. So we recently, like, uh, I don't know, but there was this, like, link going around on WhatsApp of uh, a, a site that allows you to lo- um, access historical images. Um, mm. And we, and I could see his storefront, right? He, he owned this pharmacy uh, on Coney Island Avenue in Brooklyn. Um, and I always heard the stories from my father about it. And then I could just see it. And it was just kind of remarkable. Right. Also, like my the school building where I went to school, which kind of looked the same when I went there. But to see it at that time and then to know that, you know, my grandfather's pharmacy was in the was in close proximity and just like seeing those uh, the actual buildings was quite remarkable. I don't know. Kind of touching. That's really neat. That's really neat. My father's father worked in a bristle factory in Hmm. Nuremberg before the war Hmm. and the. I recently was connected to the son of the owners of that factory. So when he was a young child, like five, six, seven years old, he would go to his parents' bristle factory, and my grandfather was like a manager at that factory. So he connected, you know, he he saw Sarah's name on some Safari email and reached out. We remembered the name from his childhood, and we we were connected, and I spoke to him. He's in his 90s and uh, had this, like, you know, Memory of my, awesome. my grandfather who died in the war, so my father has no memories of my grandfather, mm. and, and he died wow. in 1945. And like two years ago, I spoke to somebody who had like memories of him from his childhood. It's an incredible, wow. um, like uh, yeah. that that the, the way history can can bridge those me- or memories can bridge such a such a long long history. Yeah, and how like the holders of memory can be so diverse, right? It can be the people that you meet, or the buildings you sit in, or the little the little plaques from yeah. from chairs. So I'm really excited that uh, our Wednesday evening Torah Shirim are beginning once again. Uh, you have a series coming up, and then there, you know, the schedule for the next few months has already been uh, compiled, and we're excited to share it uh, with, with the community. Uh, you're teaching uh, several um, Shirim on, on Agadita and some like classic, um, powerful, inspiring stories. Challenging. I don't, know, I don't want to use too many. I don't want to use the wrong adjectives. <laughs> you'll, you'll tell me what, the, what, what adjectives to use. Stories from the Talmud, tales from the Talmud that have message, you know, lessons that are relevant. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm excited about that. I, I, I know you're looking forward to teaching Torah again, and, and uh, I, I'm excited for the community to have this chance to study with you. Going to say a little bit more about what you're teaching and, and what the classes will be like? Oh, yeah. So I'm teaching a course on Agadah, which is a Talmudic narrative, stories from the Talmud. Um, I love teaching Agadah. I've taught it in a number of contexts from a middle school classroom through Hillel's through uh, learning groups with older adults that I've run. Um, 
also in my yeshiva, back in my yeshiva for Night Seder, I would uh, offer for our uh, nightly learning session or our once a week nightly learning session. Um, uh, these stories are kind of, I was thinking about as you were talking about connecting to the past, they're kind of ways of connecting to people who lived so long ago, but still experience life in the same deep and nuanced ways. And they're, and they're, that, that we do now, and it's enshrined in the Talmud for us to remember and to learn over and over again and to revisit. And every time you revisit it, you find another, another layer, another nuance, and it's, it's remarkable how relatable these stories are every time you revisit them. Um, so that's why I love learning them, because they're just so deeply human, and they're, and they're about humans who love who love making meaning out of, out of what's going on in their lives, who are searching to connect to the world and to each other and, and to God um, through Torah, through just regular experience. So that's what uh, I'll be teaching on a little bit. Some of the stories I picked, so I, I called it Meaning Making in an Uncertain World for Talmudic Tales, because so, that's what I think is at the core of all of these Talmudic stories. How do... Uh, these rabbis or characters in the Talmud make meaning out of what they're going through? How do they understand what the significance of their experiences uh, in the world uh, as, they, as they live it? So the first one we're going to talk about um, is called What's New in the Beit Midrash? Uh, Learning to Listen. It's a story from the beginning of Masechet Chagiga, which talks about, which really highlights like the senses that are involved in learning uh, and that really, it highlights how human interaction is at the core of, and, and human relationship is at the core of any learning, any Torah learning that we do, uh, any interaction with the tradition, human relationship is at its core. So how do we really learn Torah? It's about being sensitive to the person in front of you, whether it's teacher, student, friend, chavruta, whoever you're learning in the presence of and, and uh, being sensitive to them, to what they're going through, to what they're bringing, to, to what they see that might be different from what you see. Um, so that's what's new in the Beit Midrash, and, it'll, and it all ties in to, to the world of the Beit HaMikdash and to how we encounter God, just like we encounter God in the Beit Mikdash, we encounter God through learning of these texts, of, of, the, of Agadah, of Talmud, of Torah, uh, so that's the first one. The second one is going to be about Rebbe Meir, who's a really interesting figure. Uh, he's someone who managed to to learn from from Acher, from from a sage who was cast aside, who was cast out of the the community of rabbis, and he managed to distill the Torah that he could find from his Rebbe, even after his Rebbe was kind of an outcast. Um, and so this this. Agada, this story talks about the uniqueness of Rebbe Meir's Torah, how he had a different perspective from everyone and how that brought out something really new and special in Torah, but also put him in a really vulnerable position, right? He was seen as strange. People didn't understand him, right? So that, again, connects to the uncertainty theme of how are people making meaning out of seeing different things, learning with different people, seeing different meanings in the same text? How can one text mean multiple things at the same time? Lots of postmodernism thrown in with that, but I believe it's a really strong presence in do you, these texts. Do you think Rami Mayer's unique perspective is 
I, I mean, you said you did, so I guess I want to I want to like say a little bit more, please, about the connection to Rabbi Meir's unique perspective broadly and his ability to learn from his teacher even after his teacher was an outcast uh. and rejected normative Judaism. Like, like what what's the? Can you like I don't know like like connect those dots a little bit more strongly for me? I have to think about that a little more. Um, I think Rabbi Mayer is unafraid to see things in a different way and unafraid to take approaches to Torah that others won't go near, right? So if there's a person in the world like his teacher, like Acher, Alicia Benavuya, who the rest of the community has deemed unfit, right? He doesn't practice according to our practice, so we can't learn from him. And Rabbi Mayer sees him and goes, but I see a deep wellspring of Torah here, right? There is such wisdom that this person has had just because he's had a difficult life, just because he's gained a different perspective or, or been hurt too much doesn't mean that his Torah is disqualified, right? And he's able to distill, right, the kernel, right? They say that, tochol achal klipato zarak, right? He ate the inside of the fruit of like, he got like the flesh of the fruit the, of the teachings of his, of his, uh, excommunicated teacher and he threw out what he deemed not fitting right he could he could understand what was useful and what was not but he didn't disregard all of his rebbe's teachings just because his rebbe had kind of fallen on hard times or been excommunicated was going through difficulty you know he still saw value where other people kind of said no this is too difficult i i can't i can't spend the time i can't make the effort to try and see what's valuable here after the community has said no, we, we can't learn. It's from a very him. it's a very um, counterintuitive position. I, I think like much <sighs> of contemporary orthodoxy, as I've experienced it, is about trying to determine who are like, who's authentic in and who's out. bearers mm-hmm. of tradition, right? Who can you learn mm-hmm. from? Who's in the community? Whose opinions are reliable and trustworthy, and their decisions are reliable and trustworthy, and their Right, we can invite them in to speak, and we can learn from them, and we can read what they write in an authoritative way because there's normative meaning to what we study, and right, because what we study is like how we act and how we live. So it's kind of important, right? Is this a, re- a reliable source or not? And we devote a lot of energy to those kind of that kind of. It's not just us. I think there's a lot of like the. the I think a lot of it is overdone. Okay, and like, but <laughs> nonetheless, there is all this discourse about quote unquote cancel culture, if you know such a thing exists. But that also seems to be. <laughs> Uh, a a uh, at least a a discourse around um, people whose sort of ethics have disqualified them from being part of a certain discourse, right? They don't deserve to be part of the conversation anymore. Not this mm. certain this right that, that this, this sort of privileged conversation, like that they don't deserve to be part of by virtue right. of some real or imagined sin, right? And and mm-hmm. Ray saying, no, no, just this like you know, there's, there's no there are no limits, right? His teacher was a you know. You're very well, kind. There are limits. He f- there fell on hard times. He was a uh, he rejected Judaism pretty comprehensively, right? And, yes, and he did. But the, of course, there are limits, right? There are right. It's the famous part of the stories we'll we'll look at, right? Is the the, the story of um, Rabbi Meir riding after his teacher on a Shabbat, right? And they reach the mm. literal limit, right, of the where you're, you can't travel beyond there on Shabbat. So. Uh, Right, Acher Elisha Benavuya turns to his student and says, "This is the limit." Right, he still, he still recognizes where his student is. He's not telling his student, "Leave with me." Right, my pain needs to be your pain. You need to, you need to, just like I was rejected by the community, you must be exiled with me. 
he's not saying that. And I think, I don't know, that's a, a, just an interesting point of, again, relationship that's at the heart of Torah, of kind of the teacher seeing his student, knowing the student is still inside and values being in the community and subscribing to who is authoritative and, and knowing who is not so that he can con- authentically continue the tradition. So it's interesting to see that moment where his teacher is still sensitive to that, right? Their relationship's at the core of this. It's not that uh, Alicia Benavuya is forcing Rabbi Meir to, to follow him off, off the path of Torah and mitzvot. Like there's a literal boundary that he says, don't cross. I don't know. And I think, I think Rabbi Meir, there's an element here of Rabbi Meir taking on authority for himself, um, which, which is something that maybe Rabbi Meir can do, and we can't say that everyone can do that, right? To say like, you know, I can learn from a heretic and, uh, and, and know where the boundaries are, but Rabbi Meir is, uh, and Rabbi Meir is, is, is quoted pretty extensively in our tradition, right? And we see that he's, his teachings are respected, his teachings are included, and everyone knew who his Rebbe was. So I, I don't know, counterpoint. What do you think, yeah, Rabbi? No, uh, that, that sounds like a very rich um, this conversation. And uh, for a four-week series, okay, coming up. So uh, hopefully we'll oh, get yeah. to talk about it more on the podcast later. And even more importantly, you should attend the class. It'll be offered yes. over Zoom, of course, and then um, also posted eventually on the YouTube channel. So everyone should listen and, and learn. And uh, we'll get to... Yeah. Say more about this. I, I'm actually teaching this week. I guess before your series starts, you have a little more time to research. <laughs> I'm teaching this week about uh, uh, a book called um, From Sinai to Ethiopia by Rabbi Shar- um, Shalom Sharon, who is one of the first Ethiopian Jews to go through like um, formal rabbinic training in Israel and to be ordained by the rabbinus. And his book is an attempt to reconcile the Ethiopian Jewish traditions with... Um, "Quote unquote mainstream," I, I don't "quote unquote mainstream" like halachic traditions, right? The the the, mm. the Ethiopian Jewish community doesn't have or did not have any access to the church Balpeh. They had no oral traditions. They had didn't have the Talmud uh, or any of its um, any post, you know, any, any Talmudic uh, rabbinic literature, no, any rabbinic literature. Uh, whatsoever. Uh, it seems a lot of their traditions are based in the Book of Jubilees. So they had some apocryphal uh, literature, some post-biblical literature that was you know, didn't make it into our canon. Uh, but they did not have uh, not the Mishnah, the Midrash, the Talmud, and so their mm-hmm. um, re- you know religious practice is very rooted in the Torah and its and and their interpretations of the Torah. And when they came to Israel, they were confronted with the way Judaism is practiced in every other Jewish community and. Um, in, in ways that cause a lot of crises for the community, right? Like, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years, they yearned to move to Israel. They, you know, prayed towards Jerusalem. They risked their lives to travel to Israel. Uh, there was actually a group in the 19th century who on foot made the journey, started the journey to, uh, to Eretz Israel and, and failed in that, in that effort, you know, in very tragic circumstances. And then when they finally reached Israel under like almost miraculous circumstances, it caused a religious crisis because they were told that they've been observing Judaism wrong. Uh, all along, and and their practices were denigrated and mocked, and their Jewish identity was suspect, and this was mm-hmm. a source of real crisis for the community. And uh, what Rabbi Sharon tries tried to do is to really honor the like ancient religious traditions of the Ethiopian Jewish community, uh, while also like paving a way for their eventual like uh, incorporation into. Rabbinic Judaism, Talmudic Judaism, uh, as it's been practiced in other Jewish communities. So 
uh, he the the book is you know has some like opening statements and some essays and some autobiographical information. But then he goes through. He has like a shulchan aruch of kinds where he goes through, like you know, all the different areas of Jewish observance and explains here's how things were done in Ethiopia and here's how the here's the Talmudic tradition of how this topic, you know, should be observed. And then here's my advice for Ethiopian Jews. So some instances he says, you know, they should maintain their ancient Ethiopian customs. And some he says the older generation should maintain their Ethiopian customs, but the new generation should like incorporate, you know, the mitzvah observance as the Talmud would tell us to do it. And um in some instances he um actually says, no, no, everyone should reject the Ethiopian way and should switch over. Mm-hmm. So he has like all these different categories. For example, one example of the latter, uh, the Ethiopian Jewish tradition doesn't have this idea that pikoch nefesh is override Shabbat. You, you don't, you don't uh, wow. violate Shabbat to save a life in Ethiopian uh, Jewish uh, tradition. That's inspired wow. by the Book of Jubilees. And we know actually from other, we know that at some point in, like from the other apocryphal books, we know that that was actually a, a um, like a chiddush of, of our rabbinic ancestors that pikuach nefesh overrides Shabbat that this was not a universally embraced uh, notion. Right, the Book of Maccabees talks about uh, these uh, pious Jews who were massacred on Shabbat because they wouldn't fight to defend themselves. Right, they didn't. Seems they might not have had this idea that we violate Shabbat to save life. And so the Ethiopian Jewish tradition also does not have this this element. And he thinks no, 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 <laughs> that everyone should stop stop that right now <laughs> and, and 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 embrace this. Uh, core, core, like rabbinic ethos of Judaism that we violate Shabbat to save life. So that's an example where he thinks the Ethiopian tradition should be dropped immediately. Um, and uh, if you come to the wow. class on Wednesday, we'll learn about some of the more nuanced uh, uh, areas where he tries to pave a middle ground between uh, as halakha exists, you know, in the Talmudic tradition and as it exists in the Ethiopian tradition. That's fascinating. Well, how do they read V'chai Bahem, right? Like, how do they... You're supposed to I, live I, by them. I don't. Maybe as a, as a metaphor, you should live by them. I don't know. Like you know, like you live for them. In the how did uh, right? You don't die for them. That's the <laughs> except for the three. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's look even in uh, even in the Talmud, it's not so obvious that right. I mean, the Talmud offers multiple right. One one is you should better to break one Shabbat to observe many Shabbatot, which. Uh, might only apply to somebody who's going to live at least seven more days, right? It wouldn't apply to somebody who's going to die anyway within a few days. Uh, wouldn't apply to someone who's not Jewish, right? So there are many discussions in the Talmud of in which we. So the end result is clear and, and conclusive that we always break Shabbat to save life, even if it's only for a few hours or a day or two. But um, I'd say it's not, not not so simple, not so obvious. It wasn't so obvious to our ancestors that this was the case, and mm. the, you know the. Talmud had to grapple with this also. Yeah, so the Ethiopian tradition was not this way. Like that. Um, they also, also interestingly, in terms of their value of Shabbat, they, they don't fast on Yom Kippur if Yom Kippur coincides with Shabbat. Wow. Um, right, because like Shabbat is this such a prime, prime value that you could never override Shabbat by anything, not even Yom Kippur. Again, which is mm-hmm. not like we have uh, the Talmud to work out these types of conflicts, right? And we've been, mm-hmm. you know, and, and our, our tradition went a different direction, but that's how they read the Psukim and that was their traditions and that's how they practiced. So it's not about, you know, it's not that they're wrong, it's that they're, you know, they're, they're a, a very, very ancient understanding expression of Judaism and like the normative position is not that way. So that's, that's you know. Yeah. yeah. So I, 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 I really enjoyed researching this and, and, and I, I, so I hope come on Wednesday and, Again, you can participate in the Zoom class, and it'll eventually be on the Shul's YouTube channel, so you can you know, follow up then as well. 
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Straw Hats. This is Straw Hat producer Haley Leventhal. We went on a holiday hiatus for a bit, but we're back and planning to resume our usual schedule of releasing an episode every other Wednesday. So thank you for sticking with us. If you have any feedback about the podcast or there are things you want to hear on upcoming episodes, please reach out to us. We would love to hear from you. I hope you all have a wonderful and very safe 